Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's dig in together. Well, hello, welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast, where we go verse by verse, ad fontes, to the fountain, to the Word of God, to be nourished and sustained by all that God is. My name is Tyler, I'm your host, and we are continuing our trek through the Song of Solomon. And this is, like I said last week, this is a challenging book, it's a hard book, and in some ways, because of our modern way of looking at it, it's a weird book. This is not language we're necessarily used to as modern American people. And so when we approach hermeneutics in Song of Solomon, the way we draw the meaning out of the text, it's it's a fight sometimes because this is not how we how we talk. It's sometimes seems very foreign to us. And so we tend to ask the same question as the Israelites regarding manna from heaven. What is this? Which is actually what the word manna comes from is the Hebrew word for what is this? So without further ado, let us read today's text. And we are still in chapter 1, picking up in verse 5. Daughters of Jerusalem, I am dark like the tents of Cedar. Kedar, sorry. I am dark like the tents of Kedar, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, for the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, you whom I love, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? The parallelism in this passage is heavy. And we have to look at the couplet arrangements here and try to tune into that poetic stereo to grasp the song. That there's a very specific poetic structure here that helps convey the meaning of the text. One scholar notes that the ability to experience and understand poetry is something that must be learned and cultivated, much like appreciation for excellent art or music. Poetry captures the aesthetic, the emotional, and the relational much more effectively than do intellectual propositions. An interpretation that excludes the emotional and experiential dimensions of the text and fails to connect people with the experience described in the poem falls short of exegetical excellence. So, <clears throat> in light of that, what is being conveyed in I am dark like the tents of Kedar? That is that is a challenge sometimes. In we have this imagery of being quote dark. 
And I believe that this is not a racial statement, that we're not talking about that side of being dark, but one of purely of appearance. In this context, one who is tanned, one who has been in the sun. Um, in this context here, in the, the, uh, the time period this was written, being dark was usually affiliated with being a common laborer. And so this woman, a type of the church, is seeing is seen as someone unimpressive and ordinary, yet is regarded as being lovely in the eyes of the king. And that is something that you and I are likely to do from time to time, is I am not good enough for God, and you would be right. <clears throat> but the, that's what's being conveyed here, is one's own inadequacy, yet being seen as so much more in the eyes of the king that we are his bride. Do not stare at me because I am dark, for the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. I have not taken care of my own vineyard. And so then we go into this Solomonic imagery. Um, it calls to mind the extravagance of the temple, his palace, and other undertakings. Solomon clothed things in beauty. The vineyard brings us to an interesting picture. The church woman has cared for vineyards that are not hers. And we'll see a little bit later in Song of Solomon on um, talk of literally thousands of vineyards from Solomon. that He's using some of that imagery himself. I am dark like the tents of Kedar, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. The only time we see Solomon described here in the Song of Solomon is as an illustration. So whenever we see Solomon used in the text here, aside from the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, we don't see, my name is Solomon, or I am Solomon. We have Solomon used as an illustration, that there's a poetic aspect of the use of the name Solomon. Because Solomon clothed things in beauty. His temple, his palace, some of his undertakings, there was a sense of extravagance in the kingly life of Solomon. And so when we talk about the curtains of Solomon, that's what's being conveyed. And then it goes to talk about vineyards. And the vineyard brings an interesting picture. The churchwoman has cared for vineyards that are not hers. She has, simply put, she has dwelled where she does not belong. And so let us consider briefly two other gardens in Scripture. Go back to Genesis 2. It says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord caused the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God made Adam, Ha Adam, the one from the dirt, before he made Eden. Adam was not made for the garden, the garden was made for Adam. Just off of logical progression here, in the order that things transpired, Adam was not made for the garden, the garden was made for Adam. The garden was intended to be Adam's natural environment. So when Adam and Eve fell, and were defiled by sin, their habitat was altered as well. It was no longer a suitable place for them to live. Genesis 3.20 the, the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Again, we've got this providential um, care of God. 
that he's providing for them, even though they've fallen. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach, reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So that is the first garden. That is the the ideal and why we are no longer there. Garden number two, the Garden of Gethsemane. John chapter 18. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials for the chief priests and the Pharisees, and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. That's a picture right there. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it you are seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I am he, Jesus told them, and Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. And when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Who is it that you are seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you, I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? So Christ in the garden drank the cup of suffering to reconcile us to himself. So while God was seeking his creation in the garden in the cool of the day, the creation was seeking Christ in the garden in the dead of night. And Song of Solomon paints a picture of a coming day when we are physically united with the bridegroom, that this is a garden of what is yet to be. So we have the garden we came from, the garden that by which we go back to the garden, and, the, and in Song of Solomon, we have a prophetic picture of where we will end up. So we've got how it started, how it's going, and where we'll end up in those three gardens. Can you go deeper than that? Absolutely. Um, um, James Montgomery Boyce has some phenomenal um, material on the correlation between Eden and Gethsemane in his commentary on Genesis, if you want to look into that. Um, but back to Song of Solomon. So we've got the garden, and that garden illustration, we saw the garden imagery in Ecclesiastes too, that we are looking back to Eden. But as New Testament believers, we are also looking ahead to what Christ did in the garden, and how that image of Eden is being realized by the cross. How what was lost in Eden is being reclaimed and restored through the person and work of Christ. So, Verse 7, Tell me, you whom I love, where do you pastor your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? Why should I be like one who avails herself beside the flocks of your companions? Tell me, you whom I love. That is a distinct phrase, not unlike the phrase of St. John, the disciple 
Jesus loved. This is a weighty affirmation of love directed at a specific one. And what does the church woman ask of him whom she loves? Where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them to rest at noon? Where are you? Where is the place of your rest? Acts chapter 7 says, Our ancestors had the, temp the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it, and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them until the days of David. He found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather, who built him a house. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? And so God is not bound to space as we are. God does not need a house. He doesn't need a bedroom in the same way that we do. So when we are asking where he is, as the church woman does in Song of Solomon, the question is deeper than where is the husband. The question is, where ought I to be? Because this is a bride and the bridegroom. Where should the bride be but with the bridegroom? Where should they be but united together? So the question is, where ought we to be? Where is home? C.S. Lewis writes that the fundamental concept of modern science is, or was until recently, that of natural, quote, laws. And every event was described happening in, quote, obedience to them. In medieval science, the fundamental concept was that of certain sympathies, antipathies, and strivings inherent in matter itself. Everything has its right place, its home, the region that suits it, and, if not forcibly restrained, moves thither by a sort of homing instinct. So in other words, the medieval um, thinkers looked as the universe, at the universe as having this inherent sense of belonging that everything is where it is for a reason and it is kept there by powers we can't fathom where is home where is the place we ought to be where, where is this sense of belonging that is shared by the planets and the people where do you pasture your sheep where do you let them rest at noon Philippians 2 says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he came as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth. 
and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ condescended. That's that's the word that uh, theologians like to use, that he came down, that he reduced himself in stature. Not in substance, not in ontology, but in the way he is regarded. He made himself low. He was rendered as stricken, says, Psalm, says Isaiah 53. And Christ condescended that we may ascend, not in the sense that we become God, but in the spirit of Psalm 24, that says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy presence? The answer, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully. And who is he that does that? The answer, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness. That's imputation, that's justification in the Old Testament. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Learned men have called this the beatific vision, a view of the king and his beauty. And by the grace of God, we will one day be graced with such a vision. This is where he lets the sheep to rest at noon. This is where we belong. This is where we are going as pilgrims on the way. Verse 7. <clears throat> Tell me, you whom I love, where do you pasture your sheep? And where do you let them rest at noon? Second part. Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? The veil is a poetic device in the Old Testament, and it's usually not affiliated with good things. The imagery of a veiled woman is used to um, communicate prostitution or exploitation. Exploitation, I'm sorry. So, and so the church woman's question is essentially, why should I take the form of the harlot for others? 2 Corinthians 11 says, I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me, says Paul. Yes, do put up with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So the question is, why make do with the lesser when there is Christ? Why make do with a lesser bridegroom than Christ? And to answer that question, we have to ask another question. Who is Christ? Who is this Jesus that we profess? Who is this Jesus that we as Christians are wedded to? Mark chapter 8 says Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the road he asked his disciples who do people say that I am same question who is Jesus and they answered him John the Baptist others say Elijah still others one of the prophets that's what others say that you are they say that you are John the Baptist you're one of the prophets you're you're, you're a godly person but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christos, the Greek word for the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. 
<clears throat> that is a strange illustration, isn't it? Um, tell no one about him. Why? Because there's a time when that will be revealed, but is not because of the persuasion of Peter that they will believe that Christ is that Jesus is the Christ, but it is Christ who will reveal himself to people. And so you believe in Christ. Good. That's true. Now let's walk in that. Zechariah 6 is a prophecy concerning the nature of Christ, um, who was yet to come at that time. And it says, The word of the Lord came to me. Take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have served, who have arrived from Babylon, and go that same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take silver and gold, make a crown, and place it on the head of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And you are to tell him, This is what the Lord of Armies says, Here is a man whose name is Branch, he, for he will branch out from the, his place and build the Lord's temple. Yes, he will build the Lord's temple. He will bear royal splendor and will sit on his throne and rule. There will be a priest on his throne, and there will be peaceful counsel between the two of them. The crown will reside in the Lord's temple as a memorial to Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen's son of Zephaniah. People who are far off will come and build the Lord's temple, and you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. This will happen when you fully obey the Lord your God. So, the character of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, is a type, that is another foreshadowing of Christ, who is the branch. And he is, he is crowned with a crown of gold and silver. It's a composite crown. That is not a common thing. That is very strange, because these are metals that don't necessarily bond well. And so there's something significant about a basically a two-tone crown. Because he's prophet, I mean, he's priest and king. James Montgomery Boyce comments that the priest never wore a crown or sat upon a throne, and the king never performed priestly functions. Yet here is a crown placed upon the head of Joshua, not Zerubbabel, who was king, pointing forward to the one who would be both king and priest. It is said that he will be a there will be a priest on his throne. This is why we should not be like the one who avails herself beside the flocks of the companions, because there is only one. There is only one husband. There is Christ, and he is different. He is better than the others. And so this is a statement of the loveliness of Christ as surpassing all other people. Surpassing all others. <clears throat> what does this do with Song of Solomon? It's the same guy. The one whom the church woman is seeking is the same priest who sits on the, on the throne. The Christ, the living God, the king who makes atonement, and the priest who rules. James Montgomery Boyce comments again, What is the result of his atonement and rule? The text describes it as harmony or peace. 
Harmony between whom? Not between two offices. That relationship has been harmonious from the beginning. Not between God the Father and his servant the Son. That too has existed from eternity. The peace is between the holy God and sinners. Between God and ourselves. Is Christ your peace? He has made that peace at his cross. It must be found there if you are to find it. And so in closing, that is where... That is where we sit. We are not like the the church woman that has to ask, where are you? Because we have the presence of God. His spirit indwells us, that we walk in his, in his presence, that we are marked as his. But there will come a day where we will see him face to face. But at the end of the day, we are spoken for in Christ. We are his So why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions when I am already joined to Christ? When I am his. Ponder that this week, that you are Christ's. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless. Matthew 4.4.